Well, already a full morning. We have sung about rich truths. We've read about rich truth, and we're going to continue to worship as we look at his word. In Psalm 131, if you have your Bible, Psalm 131, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, three verses. Psalm 131 reads, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Father, as we come into your word, we realize that we are in dire need of you. And as Rogers mentioned, Lord, we need your spirit. God, we are thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes to the truth, to impress it upon our souls, and to cause it to bear fruit in our lives. So, Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that you prepare every heart in this room, even my own, to receive your word and to be transformed by it. We pray that your son will be exalted. And, God, we pray for your clarity, and we pray for your ultimate glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Psalm 131, I have to confess, an easy way that I thought about introducing this passage before, um, when I first preached this on was it's very easy, this passage speaking of the, the issue of contentment, it's very easy to kind of address biblical contentment and kind of introduce it by attacking the world's view of contentment. It's just very easy. I think we can all agree that the world's view of contentment is, is bankrupt. It's empty. Um, it, we know ultimately that there's no hope of contentment apart from God. The world says you can be content by looking at yourself. I, I, it's very easy to attack that way, but I don't think that's what really is the issue Amongst believers, our issue is not understanding or not grappling with the world's view of contentment. Our issue of contentment, I think, is really understanding what does the Bible say true contentment is. One way my old pastor used to illustrate this this idea of contentment was he he gave the example say, if you're going to a, a dinner party and the host asks you when you walk in, hey, are you hungry? And then you say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I'm, I just had a salad before I came. I'm content. And you come in the same scenario again, and the host asks you, are, are you hungry? Oh, no, 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 no. I just stopped by Jocko's and had a thick, juicy steak. I'm content. And I think sometimes as Christians, we view contentment as the salad. We view contentment as, you know, I, I'm okay. It, it's, it's not great, but, you know, God is good. <laughs> I'm content. You know, I, I'm still hungry. My stomach's growling. <laughs> I'm content. Like, we almost view contentment as settling, in other words. That we see contentment not as being truly satisfied, but instead we see contentment as just a means of, of just, let me just settle here. It's almost as if, let me just make it through this difficulty, then I can finally breathe and I'll be content. Let me just see if I can make it through this one trial and then I'll be okay. Where we're anxious and we're eager to make it through that one trial, when really God is here offering for us a childlike freedom from concern, even in the midst of trials. 
that God is offering us contentment. That it's not just the idea of settling, not just the idea of, of being okay with the circumstance, but, but God here is offering us for the child of God that we can be fully satisfied no matter what comes our way. That contentment is not settling, but contentment is full and complete satisfaction. And that's what we must grapple with this morning. It's understanding that contentment, as the Bible gives it to us, is a full, complete satisfaction in God. As you'll see, notice here in the beginning of the psalm, it says a song of ascents. This psalm, along with Psalms 120 through 134, you'll notice that same subscription. It says a song of ascents. And really what these psalms were is that they were songs that the, that the, the, pilgrim, the pilgrim Jews would sing along on the way up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was about 2,700 feet in elevation. And so they would travel up to Jerusalem for three times a year for the annual feast. And they would travel up. And as they were traveling up, as they were ascending, song of ascents, as they were ascending, they would sing these psalms. So these are really the psalms of the worshiper preparing to meet God. So as they were going, living out in, in whatever lands they were living out outside of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs of ascents to prepare their hearts for worship. So we must keep in mind before we read this that this is really the heart of the worshiper as it comes before God. That this is really the heart that the songs that prepares and coats the heart with truth, preparing to meet God, very God. These songs of ascents, they, they, they really are worship songs and they express the psalms confidence that God can be trusted in times of difficulty and despair. That this is a song of the worshiper. This is the battle song. Now, we don't really know the precise background of really what was going on here in Psalm 131. It's not clear. There there are kind of suggestions that have been made of really what is the background, but I don't think ultimately we can know because the psalmist doesn't write it, um, and there's not much evidence to see what the background is. But we know specifically is what the psalm is about is about finding contentment in God himself. That we can have the hope of knowing God and living in peace because we're in God's care. We'll see in this psalm that true contentment is consistent with a calm and quieted soul, in other words. It's a soul that is undisturbed and fully at rest, regardless of the situation that he finds himself. That we can have peace. We can have true satisfaction. We can have full contentment. Charles Spurgeon said of this very psalm, he said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. One of the the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Because we know contentment is a good thing that we should strive after as believers. But let's be honest, contentment, true biblical contentment is hard. It's a hard road. And that's because the road to contentment is paved with trust. It's cemented with trust. It's cemented with trust in God, very God. It's cemented in the truth of who God is and the truth of his word. It's a hard road. But be assured that it is a road that we can travel on by the grace of God. It's an abiding trust through every trial, through every growth. I mean, consider the teaching of our Lord in John chapter 15 when Jesus is talking about the vine and bearing fruit. And what does God do to the vine in order to make it bear fruit? He prunes it, right? He cuts it. So as it's starting to grow, he cuts it and prunes it, but there's a purpose for it. He prunes it so that it bears more fruit. And so it's hard, it's difficult, but ultimately the purpose is to be even more fruitful, to be more strong to be more deeply rooted. 
Contentment is cemented with a type of trust, this unwavering trust that no matter the stage or situation of life, that is cemented with the trust that realizes that no matter where I'm at, or where, no matter where I'm standing, no matter where I'm heading, I can have true satisfaction because I know the God who placed me there. And not only does my God sovereignly place me there, but he promises me full satisfaction even in the midst of it. So this psalm naturally breaks into three parts through its three verses. And it really answers the question, how can I be at peace with sincere, complete contentment? How can I be at peace with sincere contentment in my life? That I know that contentment is true satisfaction. I know contentment is full, complete joy and contentment in who God is. I know this to be true, but how can I get to that place? How can I be at peace with this sincere contentment? And in Psalm 131, there are three instructions for being completely content in God. Three instructions for being completely content in God. So we're going to look at the first instruction in verse 1. And that first instruction is to crucify all pride. Crucify all pride. Now you notice here by way of observation, in these first two verses, David provides us with his own personal testimony, so to speak. You notice the first person pronouns he used all throughout those first two verses. I mean, just look at it if you see. He says, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters, nor in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a, like a child resting against his mother, my soul is, is like a weaned child within me. David here is giving us a peek into his own soul. This is what I have done. This is my life. This is my own testimony. That we're kind of peeking into David's heart, so to speak. And he's showing us, this is what I have done. And he first starts with the instruction of, of notice what he's not done in verse 1. He says, this is what he's not done. He says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't involve myself in things too difficult, too hard for me. This is what he's not done. He's illustrating, in other words, the posture of his heart. He's showing us, because, I mean, if you step back and think about it, he's saying all these things that he's not done. I'm not proud. I'm not boastful. I'm not haughty. I think when we read that, we sometimes, you kind of think, okay, someone who says they're not proud, you just immediately disqualified yourself. <laughs> like when someone says, oh yeah, I'm so humble, uh, no you're not. <laughs> like I'm not proud, mm, you may be. <laughs> like you immediately kind of think, that may not be true. But that's not what David is here is doing. He's not bragging, so to speak. He's really speaking to whom? Oh, Lord, he's speaking before God, who he knows sees all things, a man after, his, after God's own heart. He knows God sees everything, and he's really illustrating for us the posture of his heart. He's showing before God, oh, God, before you, because I know who you are, because I know that you're the sovereign God, because I know that you're almighty, because I know I am not, because I know I'm David, I'm nothing, I was a shepherd, and I, people looked down on me, I was, I was nothing, and you esteem me, you brought me up. I know, God, who I am before you. So he's describing the posture of his heart, and so he's not bragging, but he's speaking to God, knowing that God before you, I know who you are, and therefore I know who I am, and my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. In other words, David has a correct view of himself in relationship to the covenant God with whom he is speaking. He realizes there's no room for himself on the throne of God. One person said it this way, that a man does well to know his own size. There's a lot of truth to that. Because here David realizes that he is not God, but he is talking and he's speaking with the Almighty God. 
And it's beginning with the core of his being because he, he describes his, my heart is not proud. Because he realizes here, if his heart is proud, if, if, if there's pride in my heart, everything else is defiled. That if, if, there's, if there's pride there, there's, there's nothing else good of me. So he begins with his heart. He literally says, my heart is not lifted up, you could say another way. That, that his heart is not proud, his heart is not lifted up. That this whole idea of having a proud heart is spoken of, of the, the king of Tyre, the ruler of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. And, and as Ezekiel's giving the condemnation to him for his pride, he says, because your heart is lifted up, in Ezekiel 28, you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. In other words, you're being condemned because you said your own heart, your own heart is lifted up, your own heart is realized it's so, so full of proud. You, you think you are a God, you said you are a God. You think you're greater than God. You think you're, you're, you're deified. And so this whole idea of having a pride heart, a proud heart, is, a, is an abomination in God's sight because it, it fails to see self as self, if you will, and it fails to see God as God. And so David here is saying, no, my heart is not proud. My heart is not lifted up because I realize who you are, God, and I am not God. Not only his heart is not proud, but his eyes are not raised too high. His eyes are not haughty, he says. This whole idea of thinking too, too, too much of yourself. That David himself speaks of this in 2 Samuel 22, verse 28. As David is, is given a song after the Lord delivered him from his enemies, he says, you, have, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. That David realizes that ultimately God is a God who saves the humble. But God hates the haughty. God hates the proud. And I think by... Just by way of observation, I think David learned this from a life of learning to trust in God. That this was nothing something David picked up overnight. That you consider David's life, that from the very beginning, David faced trial after trial after trial. Even, not only just from Saul, but his own son. Like, David lived a hard life. So I don't think David is just speaking and just saying this out of nowhere. I think David is speaking from experience. That through the difficulties in his life, he learned who God is, and he learned how God is sufficient for him in every circumstance. I mean, you think of Psalm 3, O Lord, many are they that rise up against me. Many are they that say of me that there is no hope for him in God. That, that David knows oppression. And yet, in the midst of that, what does David say? But thou, O Lord, art shield for me. You're my glory and the lifter up of my head. That David knew, even in those times of oppression, even those times of struggling, that David found God to be his glory, the one who lifts his head. He's speaking from personal testimony. That he's a life constantly learning to trust God in every, in every trial, through every struggle, through every heartache, through every oppression. This is important to learn and important to highlight in verse 1 because we must realize that a proud heart cannot trust God. That a proud heart cannot trust God. And the reason why that I mean, makes sense, because a proud heart can't trust God, because a proud heart is constantly trying to, to, to take control of the, of, the, of the horses, of the bit in the horse's mouth, so to speak. That a proud heart is constantly trying to change the circumstance, constantly trying to, trying to organize it in a way that benefits them, constantly trying to change it because it's trying to change the way they don't like something or change this person. It's tr- constantly trying to take control. That pride is the enemy of trust. Now, we can't trust God if we're focused upon ourselves, right? It makes sense. We, we can't trust God if we're focused upon ourselves because we're constantly concerned about my own needs. I'm constantly concerned about my own agenda. I'm constantly concerned about my own opinion. That pride is the enemy of trust. Now, I don't think 
pretty much everything I've just said is hard for us to grasp as believers. I don't think that's hard to grasp. We know pride is wrong. We know pride is a sin. We know that pride is simply antithetical to trust. But I think we're easy to excuse ourselves from this, not realizing how subtly pride can creep into our hearts daily. That pride is a constant sin we must crucify at the cross. Because really, pride manifests itself in many ways. Prayerlessness. When we fail to pray, we fail to pray why? (laughs) Because we subtly think that we don't need God's help. That subtly we realize that this is the work that I can do on my own. That when I fail to pray, it's really a manifestation of my own pride because I am not relying upon God, but I'm relying upon my own efforts and my own strength to do the daily task that God and God alone can equip me to do. That prayerlessness is a manifestation of pride. Complaining is a manifestation of pride. I'm complaining about my circumstance because I don't like it. And so I don't like it, so I'm going to change it because I don't like how God, sovereign God, orchestrated this. So let me complain about it. Complaining, a manifestation of pride. Discontentment. Another manifestation of pride. If I'm not content with my life, I'm not content with it because I don't like that. I don't like this hardship. Every day I have to live with this? Every day this thorn in my side? I don't like that. I'm not content. And so because I'm not content, I don't have joy. I don't have peace because I don't like it. Because it's not how I want it. A manifestation of pride. Grumbling. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness, grumbling day after day after day because they were not content with man and they weren't content with what God provided them with. They were proud and God hated it and judged them for it. That pride manifests in our hearts subtly often. That it's, it's in our life constantly that we have to crucify. And in the context of the psalm, when David is saying, my, my heart is not haughty and my eyes are not lifted up, or excuse me, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty, what he's really saying here is he's not really concerned about his own agenda because look how he follows it up in the next phrase. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So he's not, pre, he's not preoccupied with greatness or accomplishments. And when he's talking about things of great matters, he's really talking about these accomplishments of his own. He's not concerned about rising to the seat of authority to, to be the best king of all kings. He's not concerned with, with rising to that seat of, of greatness. He's not concerned with things too difficult for him. In other words, things that he can't comprehend. That, that, that David realizes, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, that the secret things belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to man. David realizes there are things I can't comprehend. I'm not concerned about my own accomplishments. I'm not concerned about my own agenda. I'm not concerned about my own mission, my, my, own, my own strivings. I'm not concerned about these things. I don't involve myself in these great matters because he realizes these are great matters. They're beyond him. He, he, can't, he can't fathom them. And in fact, the same verbiage is used in Psalm 139 when it talks about God's omnipresence. Remember how it says that God, you hem me in behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me? And right after that, what does he say? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, same verbiage, too lofty for me to attain. I can't understand it. That even there, David, the mere omnipresence of God, David cannot understand. Now layer that with the omnipresence of God in the midst of his trials and circumstances. These are great matters for me. I can't explain them. I can't, I can't understand them. And so... David realizes that here, that that my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty because I realize ultimately I can't understand these things. I can't orchestrate these things. God, you have placed me to the seat of king. I had not placed my own self. And so because I realize you are God and I realize I am not, he's crucified his pride. These things are too wonderful for me. 
too lofty for me to attain. David knows his place. The events, the successes, the, the defeats. He's not proud. He's not trying to grasp or understand, understand the things above his pay, pay grade, so to speak. That he understands who he is. Because the proud person is, is constantly looking and comparing and competing. is never content. The pride is antithetical to contentment. The pride of these concerns essentially stem from an attempt to control or grasp things that God has not granted us to grasp or comprehend. There's some things in our life, some difficulties, some trials that God has not granted us to understand why. And yet in the midst of those, our heart should reflect David's heart, which ultimately reflects the heart of God, that these things are in his sovereign care. And instead of trying to grapple and trying to understand this, I realize, God, that you are God and I'm not. I mean, let's be honest. How often does our idolatrous desire for comfort and for ease and success rule our heart? Even just for comfort, for ease. That's, that's, that's an easy idol. I just, want a, I just want a good day. Just one good day. I just want one good night of sleep. <laughs> I, I, I just want one good day. You know, I, those, those desires can become idolatrous for us. And some of these things, we have to submit to God's sovereign plan. And so pride is an idol that we must break at the foot of the cross. It's inconsistent with trust. As First Peter 5, 5, chapter, verse 5 says that God opposes, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That God hates the proud heart. He hates the heart that, that, that fails to seek him in prayer constantly. The heart that fails to realize that they are nothing without him. And the, the heart that fails to see that God is the one who does and orchestrates all things. And that we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So David here, he's crucified his pride by committing himself to the care of another. I think that's one key for us to understand. And if we want, if we want to crucify pride or self-righteousness, so to speak, if we want to crucify our self-righteousness, we crucify self-righteousness by extending and giving ourselves to the righteousness of another. That the reason why I'm self-righteous is because I've rejected the righteousness of another. And one way of crucifying our pride is to shatter our own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is true righteousness. David's crucified his pride. He's committed himself to the care of God. It's really underlining for us a heart of humility. A heart that realizes that we can't, we can't understand things. We, we don't involve ourselves in great matters. We don't involve our things in, too, in self in, in things too difficult for us. But rather, we entrust ourselves to the care of God. He's crucified his pride. Second instruction in verse 2, his first instruction in crucifying our pride, second instruction is to rest in God's providence. Rest in God's providence. You'll see this in verse 2 because he's already emphasized what he has not done, right? Verse 1, this is what I've not done. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't involve myself in things too difficult. This is what I've not done. But notice here in verse 2, now we're going to look at what David has done. What did he do actively, proactively? You notice how he starts off in verse 2 with just one word. And what is that? Surely. Surely. It's a word we easily just glance over because it's just a small word, surely. But really this word here is used as an oath. This, this word is used in action that one has committed himself to take. That he's not just saying surely as, just, as a poetic way of speaking, but he's saying, no, this is an oath I have taken. Surely, surely what? I have composed and quieted my soul. 
He has taken an oath to soothe and to calm his soul. Now that's great and dandy for you, Dan, for, for you David. I mean, that, that's great. You, you calmed and soothed your soul. That's great, but I tried that. <laughs> I've been anxious. I've, I've tried to calm and quiet my soul. <laughs> so what? I, I couldn't do it. That, that's great. I, I've tried that, David. But the key here is not necessarily what David has done, but how he has done it. Not what he has done, but how he has done it. And I think we can understand this by the illustration he provides us in those following phrases right there. How has he calmed and quieted his soul? In the midst of stress, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of every single thing that could cause his soul to not be quiet and to not be comforted, how has he done it? Look at the phrasing there. Like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. He compares himself to a weaned child. That as this child rests against his mother, that's how my soul has been weaned within me. Now, we can just kind of tease out this illustration here. A weaned child that we know, a weaned child is a child no longer needing milk from the mother, but this weaned child is no longer needing that milk, but is simply content in in the arms of the mother. The weaned child is no longer fretting for the mother's milk. It's it's simply satisfied with the mother's affection. The weaned child is no longer looking to to be fed and no longer crying and worrying about every every hour being fed, every worry about every single thing in their life. But instead, the weaned child is simply contented child because the contented child finds their contentment in the mother. It's a quiet and developed child. It's a soul that is free from self-seeking. It's free from its frets and fears because it realizes now that I'm simply content by being in the arms of mom. I remember one of my, one of my kids that, well, obviously we probably all know this, is that early on, as a father, you, you learn that early on, only mommy will do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I can try to rock and all I, rock all I want. I can do everything. I can sing. I can, until, until I turn blue. I can do all these things. And they'll still cry and cry and cry. And you hand them to mom and what happens? Silence. But I'll never forget is with my oldest is that there was that moment after, after that point is there was a moment when when she would cry, and no longer just wanting milk. There was a point when I was able to rock her, and she was comforted and quieted in my own arms. That was a beautiful moment because I realized that she was simply content with just with, with daddy, simply content being rocked, and I could rock her to sleep, and she was at peace. And that was a precious moment. And by way of illustration, I think that's just kind of a peek here at what David is saying here. Is that he has found himself completely quiet and content in the arms of God. But what's the most important is how he has done that is because he realizes whose arms he's in. The child can rest because he realizes that every need is met by the mother. That he doesn't have to worry about the next feeding. He doesn't have to worry about whatever concerns he have. As long as I'm in the arms of the mother, I'm okay. The child against the mother is satisfied. And I also think it's kind of interesting that David, the mighty warrior, the one who took down lions and tigers and bears, oh my, he took down all, I mean, he's a mighty, mighty warrior. And yet here, David is satisfied to compare himself with the weaned child, this mighty man of God. He said, no, 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 my soul is quieted like a weaned child. It implores even David, the mightiest of warriors, to rest in God's care. That this mighty warrior is content with being compared to a weaned child because he realizes that God is sufficient for his every need. 
Now, again, this doesn't mean that David didn't face situations as we, as we clearly uh, already hashed out in Psalm 3 and in other many cases of Scripture. David faced tribulation after tribulation, and there was much, much temptation not to be content. But yet his hope was not in situations. His hope was always in his God. That God, David was always content in God because he realized no matter what his situation was, he realized who God was. Now, that we can have this peace and contentment of a child in the mother's arms because we realize that we're in the arms of a sovereign God, a sovereign and good God at that. A God who knows our circumstances, a God who knows our heartaches, a God who knows our burdens. And that doesn't mean he's going to remove those circumstances and those burdens, those heartaches. But what it does mean is that he and his character is sufficient to sustain us in the midst of those heartaches and burdens and difficulties. That God's character is sufficient to carry us through it. I think sometimes we're not content because we're, we're, we're suddenly trying to get out of God's arms. Like, no, no, okay, let me handle this. I, I can take this. <laughs> let me take control here because this is not happening. No, 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 no. I, I don't think you heard my prayer. <laughs> this is how it's supposed to work out. This is the result. And so we're oftentimes our soul is not quieted. Our soul is not calm because we're not content with who God is and his character to, to sustain us through that situation. That God himself is good even in the midst of it. So our soul is not quieted, but it's angry. Our soul is not comforted, but it's disturbed. It's anxious. It's critical. It's overwhelmed. But we can quiet our soul in the sufficient care of God. And I think one reason why David can rest in God's care in this is because David realized the providence of God. Now that is a beautiful doctrine for us as believers to really embrace and to live out in our, in our daily lives. The very providence of God. Because if God was not providentially working in every aspect of your life, I would be anxious. If God was not providentially working in every aspect of my life, through every trial, through every difficulty, I would be a mess. <laughs> because if I, do, if I cannot trust that God was in control, where would I be? But that's not the case. Amen? That David here is saying here is that I can rest in God's care because he realizes who God is. So even in the midst of that trial, when he's being followed by Absalom, when Saul is trying to persecute him, when all his enemies around him are trying to come and get him, he knows who God is. And he says, no, 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 no. I know my God. Now, O oh Lord, on my glory, you lift up my head. That you will keep me. You will sustain me no matter what comes my way. I can trust because you never change no matter what. The providence of God, I think a simple definition of of providence, is it's God's operation with created things, causing them, whether directly or through secondary causes, to act for God's intended will. That God's operation with created things, whether directly or through secondary causes, to act, and he does them, giving energy to secondary causes, and he directs them all to his intended end. That everything God is working in your life, everything that, God is, everything that happens here on earth, God is providentially working for his intended end. Whether that is good on our end or bad on our end, God is providentially working. He is working all things for the good. So not only directly through, through people, but also secondary causes, through, through other people, through ever, other circumstances. Everything that is outside of our things, things that are too lofty for us to attain, God is providentially working. He is working in our lives, and he's directing everything for his intended end. And his intended end is good. It's good. And I think... He's speaking of a weaned child, and I think the hard reality of being compared to a weaned child is the reality that we're being weaned off of something. That we're being weaned off of something. For David, 
I, I, I think it's likely he's being weaned off of the, the, the vain idols of ease, of royal succession, uh, of favor of man. All these things David has been weaned off of. He's no longer concerned with being king because he realized God will keep him there if, if God appointed him there. He's no longer worried about the nation because he realized God made covenant with Israel. So he's not concerned about these things because he's realized who God is. So David is weaned off of the, the stresses of royal succession, of, of, uh, of, of his kingdom, of, of royalty. He's, not, he's weaned off of these great things. And instead now he's focused on God. So he's weaned off of these things. But for us, God may be weaning things in our life that are difficult. <laughs> there are things in our life that God is, is slowly taking off, but yet he's matching that with his provision and his sovereign care. That David found something better than all of these things. David found something better than, than the idol of ease, of royal succession, or favor of man. That David found something better than all of these things. That a weaned child is weaned off of milk, but yet is satisfied in other food. That a weaned child is not, is not just starving. A weaned child is content. So the hard part about being weaned is that we are being weaned off of something. That a weaned child must drop their anxiety and find the rest in the arms of God. I mean, you just think about God's promise to Israel. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That that must have been the back of David's mind. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet even to the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 5, he tells the new covenant Christians to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the very promise that God gave to the nation of Israel, the author of Hebrews is now speaking to new covenant Christians, you and me. And he's saying here, in the same way God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you to the nation of Israel, as a believer in Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So therefore, keep your life free from money. Keep your life free from the concern of, of, of money and of luxury and of things and of people and be content with what you have. That the same promise that God gives to them, he gives to us in Christ, that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will constantly sustain us. That no matter what comes our way, we can trust in who he is. So that if the Lord weans us from our dearest delight, we bow to his will. That if the Lord takes away the very thing close to me, the very thing I love, if the God decides to sovereignly wean that from me, I trust that what he's doing is good and that he remains the same. That this trust is grown out of humility, realizing that I am but a mere child, but my papa knows what's best and what I need. So if he takes something from me, I know that he's, he's, he's working. I know that he's providentially working for my good. So that I can say along with Job that though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he said that blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections which wean us from self-sufficiency, which educate us into Christian maturity, which teach us to love God, not merely when he comforts us, but even when he tries us. Blessed are those afflictions that God brings our way. Blessed are those trials. Blessed are those things that he weans from us. Blessed are those difficulties. Because ultimately they teach us to love God more and more, and to find him that he is what I need even more than that. How does God wean us? There are many ways, but here are a few ways I think God weans us. I think one way he weans us is by embittering the world to us. By embittering the world to us. 
that it, the longer we live in the Christian life, we realize things that we used to really love and cling to, not even things that are inherently sinful, just earlier in our walk, those things that really aren't appealing to me anymore. That I've realized that no, I, I don't need those things anymore. That, that, that the world becomes more and more embittered to us. That I realize here, this is not my home. I'm just a sojourner passing through. That, I, that the things that used to delight me, I used to take, that were so important to me, I realize it's really nothing. That God really embitters the world to us. And sometimes it happens by removing things from us. I think another way God weans us is by removing the things that we love. Removing the things that we love. Some of the things that the things in our life that we really love and cling and, and cherish dearly, that when God removes them through the sanctifying process, we realize that we did not really need that either. Another way he weans us is by giving us better food. He gives us better food. That God himself, we see, is sufficient. And God not only just takes and weans and removes those things and prunes us, but he gives himself, which is the best that we could ever need and ask for. So we can say along with Paul that the fellowship, even in his sufferings, are sufficient for me. And we must remember that weaning is ultimately done by the control of God, that God is the one who removes, God is the one who prunes, God is the one who tests, God is the one who refines. And he does this in his own sovereign time clock, that we don't know when he's going to do it, we don't know how he's going to do it, but when he does do it, we know that this is for my good. That I know that even when my heart is troubled, I can rest in God's character because I know who God is. So I will feast on God's faithfulness. I will feast in God's goodness. I will feast in the riches of the gospel. I will meditate upon these because when I feast upon that, I will be truly satisfied. And I will find out that the things that my heart was really anxious about are really nothing to be concerned. That I will find that God and God himself will be my greatest source of delight. Because Psalm 1611, that in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. That I will find in God's presence, as I immerse myself at God's feet, I will find the fullness of joy that I was never able to find those things outside. That he promises fullness of joy, complete contentment. So when God does remove, when God does refine, when my heart becomes uh, disturbed, when my heart becomes anxious, when my heart becomes worried, let me reflect and look upon the God who's holding me. Let me look and reflect upon the character of the God who's holding me. Let me reflect upon the promises of the God who's holding me. Let me reflect upon the God who is God, even in the midst of my difficulty. So as we're weaned from milk, so to speak, along with our Lord while he was on earth, we can say that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That as he weans us, we realize, no, no, my food is to do the work and the will of my father. That that is why I live. That is why I move. That is why I have my being. Randy Alcorn said that God uses suffering to break us of self-dependence and bring us to rely on him. I think that's very true. That suffering is sometimes used to break us of that self-dependence that we suddenly had. That that's what was so important to me. I realized that I was really depending upon myself and my own comforts. That I was putting myself first. And I didn't realize that God was the one who orchestrated this for me. And yet God is also the one who will sustain me through it. 
that God uses the weaning process to rely so that we would rely upon him. So David here, he composed, he's quieted his soul like a weaned child because he realizes that I don't need that which I used to crave. And instead, I found my affection. I found my, my full delight. I found my full satisfaction in the God who's holding me. That I'm content in the God who is my God. I've crucified my pride, and I'm resting in God's care. Third instruction, verse 3, I'm trusting in God's promises. Trust in God's promises. If you notice here in the beginning of verse 3 that it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And that right there is the only imperative, the only command in this whole chapter. And the imperative there, the command is to hope in the Lord. Now, you notice here just by, by way of observation that David here is moving from his personal testimony. Remember, he said, this is what I have done. I have not done this. I have not done this. But this is what I have done. Now he's speaking to Israel. He's moving from a personal testimony to a national exhortation. Oh, Israel now. Now, he's not speaking to the people. Oh, Israel. What is he saying, Israel? Hope in the Lord. Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads, hope, Israel, in the Lord. The emphasis there is on the hope. Hope, Israel, in the Lord. It's, in other words, to wait on the Lord. This is not just a cross-your-fingers kind of hope, or just maybe this will, hope, this will hopefully work out. But no, this is a certain hope. This is a confident expectation. This is a hope that is established upon God. This is uh, the confident hope. Because you look at here, he's saying, oh, hope in where? The Lord. At the beginning of verse 1, oh, Lord. Just notice there, LORD is in all caps. And just by a reminder that all caps, when you ever see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, it's speaking to Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. That David is speaking to God, the covenant God. So his hope is not fixed upon his thoughts or his expectation, but his hope is fixed upon the covenant and the promises that God has made with Israel. So he's saying here, Israel, hope in the God who made a covenant with you, a covenant that won't be broken and a covenant that can't be broken because it's fixed and it's standing on the sure promises of God. So Israel, hope in God. Hope in those things that God gave to you. He's not just commanding them to hope, but he's commanding them to rest in that hope. This is a hope that is focused on the specific promises of God. It's a hope that's, that, that, that is standing on his promises. And not only that, but the object of the hope is where? Hope in the Lord. Hope in Yahweh. Hope in the God who made this covenant, that our hope is ultimately always fixed upon one person. It's fixed upon God. That hope is where we find our greatest delight, our greatest hope, and our greatest joy, because we realize that the reason for my hope, the reason for my joy, is because of who God is. Now, this is hope not in, in the changing of our circumstances, but this is a hope in, in, in someone. It's a hope in the, the God who will promise to keep us and sustain us, as the author of Hebrews said. He said that he will never let you down. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. It's hope in his promises to satisfy you. Not just to endure the circumstance, but to thrive in the circumstance. This hope is ongoing. because it's from this time forth and forevermore. So Christian hope in the Lord. That when we face our circumstances, when we face difficulty, we realize that we can have hope in God because we realize who God is. And the only reason why we can have that hope is because we know who he is, because we studied his character, and we've clung to his character, and we love his character, and we're standing upon his character. That his promises are our hope. That he is our hope. His word is our hope. To hope in the Lord, O Israel. 
that if you want this abiding contentment, if you want this abiding trust, if this is what you want, O Israel, fix your eyes upon the one who gives it to you. Fix your eyes upon the one who's holding you and sustaining you even in the midst of the difficulty. This hope is ongoing forevermore, that God never changes from yesterday, today, and forevermore. He remains the same. And for even for us, we need to know Romans 8, 28, that we know this is a great promise for us as believers to always remind ourselves in that, that God works all things for our good. That because I'm in Christ, because God he has redeemed me in Christ, but even while, as Nathan reminded us, that we were dead in our transgressions, our sins, that he made us alive in Christ. Because who I am in Christ, I now have an inheritance, but also that I have the promise of the Holy Spirit within me. That my hope is fixed upon God. My, the Christian's confidence is fixed in standing upon Yahweh, the Lord. So I can have hope even in the present promises, in my present circumstances, because I realize that even in my present difficulties, that God's promises remain sure to keep me, sustain me, even today. And I even know that ultimately that my hope is never just fixed here on earth, but my hope is always ultimately pointing towards eternity. That we must know and understand that biblical hope is not just hope that ends here on earth, but our hope extends beyond here. Our hope extends into eternity. And for us to have true hope, we always have to have, as one theologian said, we must have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. That we must have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. That we know that our life and our life and, and, and everything, our hope and our promises and what we're looking forward to, it never ends here. But my hope is ultimately pointing towards eternity. So if my hope is only fixed upon earth, I will always and constantly be disappointed here on earth. But my hope is always fixed on Christ and my longing is to be with him eternally in his presence. There's a, there's a book, the gospel, the gospel Primer, by uh, Milton Vincent, and he speaks of this idea of biblical hope. And he really highlights the importance of hope of, uh, in, in the context of eternity, to realize that our hope must have an eternal end, an eternal end that never ends. And one thing he says, I'm just going to read, I think it's very helpful and a very clear way of looking at biblical hope. He says that hope of eternity with Christ in heaven also enables my heart to thrive during the most difficult and lengthy trials here on earth. When looking at the sheer weight of the unseen glories to come, my troubles seem light by comparison. And when looking at the staggering length of eternity, my troubles seem fleeting by comparison. It is only against the backdrop of a glorious eternity that my, that my circumstances can be seen in such a manner. That when I realize, in comparison to eternity, my troubles here on earth are nothing. That when I look at what's waiting for me, to be with my God in eternity and the hope and the promises that he's given to me and granted me in Christ, when I keep that in my mind, when I realize that my heart is ultimately fixed upon that, the things here are nothing. That our hope is always looking forward and that hope sustains me through my daily circumstances. So as we see what David's done, he's crucified all pride. He's, he's resting in God's promises. And he's trusting in God's promises. Sorry, trusting in God's promises. He's crucified all pride, resting in God's providence, and trusting in God's promises. I think how appropriate is this for this psalm to be a song of ascent? How appropriate is this to be a song of ascent? Because if you realize, how can someone really worship God if they're not content in the God with whom they're worshiping? 
How can we truly worship God if I'm not content in God? How can I sing about God's faithfulness if I don't trust him to be faithful? How can I sing about God's love if I'm not resting in God's love? How can I, how can I sing about God's provision if I'm not trusting his provision? That this is really rightly a song of ascent because it's preparing our hearts to be content with God, realizing that no matter the cares of the world, no matter how much my heart is t- prone and tend to be anxious and to be worried about the circumstances of life, no matter how prone I am to that, I must rest my heart on the providence of God and realizing that I am in his care. And because I'm in his care, I am truly at rest. So when my heart is troubled, when I face tomorrow, when I face the next hour, I must fix my eyes on the one who never changes. I can be truly content because I know I'm ever in God's tender care. Now, I think this is why the Apostle Paul remains steadfast in the midst of difficulty. When he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, you know, I, I, he says, I, I know what it's like to be, I know what it's like to, 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 have, to have nothing. I also know what it's like to have much. I know, I know in all these circumstances, I, I, I have learned to abound. I've learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. And why can Paul endure that? Because Paul realizes, whether he's in jail cell, whether he's in Corinth, in Philippi, no matter where he's at, he's there because God has sent him there. That we can be content because we realize who God is. For some of us, <clears throat> I told my, my college group um, before I left, is one of the things I, I reminded them is that with all the circumstances and trials that you're going through as a college student that, that COVID brought upon you, as, as a child or as a, as a college student, you can imagine not being on campus um, there are many difficulties. And one thing that we constantly have to remind ourselves of is, is, is I kind of put it this way in, in a kind of Piper-esque kind of way, in John Piper-esque kind of way, is that don't waste your COVID. <laughs> don't waste your COVID. In other words, don't, don't, whatever you, can, you can replace COVID with whatever, whatever the circumstances. Don't waste the COVID. Don't waste the illness. Don't waste the financial hardship. Don't waste that, that difficult relationship. Don't waste that opportunity that God providentially put in your life. Because really what God is doing is he may be pruning some of us through these circumstances. That he may be removing some things that we clung so dearly to, American freedoms, that really aren't Christians in other countries don't have. That God may be weaning us. That God may be pruning us. God may be working something in your life. And when he is weaning and when he is pruning, what will our heart be? And it really goes deeper than COVID. This is daily life. This is our Monday morning. This is our Tuesday afternoon. This is our Wednesday evening. This is every day when our heart is prone to become upset and concerned about things in our heart and our lives. We must fix our eyes and crucify my own agenda, crucify my own desires that that I'm troubled by, and rest in God's care and hope in his promises. That the tragedies, the upsets, the ups and downs, where is our satisfaction found? Is my satisfaction going to be in my circumstance and how I want it, or will it be in God himself, even in the midst of that? The deeper our rest in Christ, the sweeter our contentment will be. I think one way to ask and to test our soul is, when my soul is not at peace, why not? When my soul is not at peace, why not? Is it, I'm not getting something that I, I really want? Am I upset about the outcome or something that I think shouldn't be the way it is? 
Am I not getting something that I want, that I feel I'm entitled to, not getting it the way I want it? Is my soul not at peace? Why not? I don't even think taking a step further, if your soul is at peace, test your heart. Why? Why is your soul at peace? Is it you just had a good day, a good week, if there's no hardship? Or is our soul at peace because my soul is at peace in who God is? Is my situation good? Or is it because my God is good? As we're being weaned off worldly things, we must find ourselves content in God alone. So when we realize that He is, when we realize that He is all we need, we will finally be satisfied with all that He is. And what God promises is a full satisfaction and contentment that nothing else can offer. And he offers us the childlike freedom from concern of a weaned child in the mother's arms. That this is our God. That his promises never change. His, his promises remain the same. That he is who he is yesterday, today, and forevermore. And it's our exhortation to hope in this same God. To find our rest in this God. And to shatter our own concerns, shatter our own pride at the foot of the cross. And to find him to be our all in all. Pray with me. Father, we need we need you. We realize, God, that there are many reasons for us to be concerned and be anxious and to be worried and to be upset. There are many opportunities for that. And yet, God, as you orchestrate those events into our life, I pray, Father, that we would be ones who run to your arms, who drop everything in our arms. And cling to you. That we would rest in your care. And rest in your promises. And that we would find you to be all. In all. Lord we need this reminder day by day. I pray that you would massage these truths into our hearts. That we would worship you. With a heart that is fully content. That we would worship you with a heart that is full of joy. Because we know who you are. God we are in dire need of your strength. So, Lord, would you grant that to us even today as we go about our days? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.